<laughs> well, that's getting cut out. Um, Fair. <laughs> I want. I want it though. I want the audio. Hello, and welcome to A Century in Cinema. My name is Arthur. I'm a local filmmaker here in Utah, and. You know, the world is not mine. Oh, it's sad to learn that, you know, especially <laughs> through film. <laughs> uh, and my name is Andrew. I'm a professional film historian and, uh, yeah, a longtime De Palma fan, a De Palma devotee, if you will, a, D, a Devo, a Devo Palma. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it, it, we're workshopping it. We're workshopping that. <laughs> And this is a podcast where we watch and discuss a classic film that I have not seen. But I most likely have. From every year. This week, we're in 1983. We're watching Scarface from director Brian De Palma and starring Al Pacino. For any new listeners, you can find where our movies are streaming or available to rent online, down in the link in our show notes. I myself watched this one on Amazon. I rented it from Amazon. Yeah, I bit the bullet and just bought the Blu-ray since I already own so many of his movies. In our bonus segment available to Patreon subscribers, we ask the question, what makes a good remake? Is there such a thing? We'll get into it. Yeah, we will. As always, we like to give our listeners a little context for what's going on in the year 1983. So what's going on? President Reagan proposes the Strategic Defense Initiative, or SDI, which you might know as the Star Wars plan. You've heard of this, right, Andrew? Never. No? I remember this from, like, elementary school. It involves satellites and lasers being used to intercept nuclear missiles. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was criticized as being unrealistic and was called the Star Wars plan by its uh, critics. Why didn't they call it the monkey business plan? Why would they call it that? Because that was the that was the big movie Ronald Reagan was in. Oh, a missed opportunity. Yeah. Spoilers for the end of the decade. That technology was never completed. The idea was abandoned after the Cold War. So also in the Cold War in 83, the U.S. deploys cruise missiles to Europe amid mass protests. It makes it sound like the cruise missiles were shot at Europe. They No, they were stationed in <laughs> Europe to threaten the Soviet Union. That, there we go. The space shuttle Challenger is launched on its maiden flight. In Africa, one of the worst droughts in history is going on in uh, Ethiopia, and four million people die. Sorry, that's 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 that, a that was a downer. Yeah, that, that's the downer for the year. Um, the Mario Brothers game debuts first as an arcade game in Japan, and uh, there's actually kind of a video game crash going on right now. The game isn't successful when it's released. But some more spoilers, Mario Brothers will be successful in the future. Yeah, I think they find I think they hit a stride a little bit. I hear. I hear about that. IBM releases their second line of personal computers for at-home use. And I don't know exactly what this means, Andrew, but the ARPANET changes to use the internet protocol, creating what we now know as the internet today. And I think that is a big deal. Oh, yeah, the ARPANET, of course. So that's what happened this year. Andrew, do you have any obscure film recommendations that uh, you'd like to point out for the audience? Yeah, I sure do. First up for 1983 is a really fantastic film about immigration into the United States. I've recommended this film many times to people, especially with uh, when the Trump presidency was uh, in its full swing and especially his even more so his campaign before the presidency, which was so rooted in fear of immigrants coming to America. It's called El Norte, directed by Gregory Nava. I was recommending this movie to like everybody who uh, came into the tower for a little while. This is a really heartbreaking film about two Guatemalan immigrants, Enrique and Rosa, uh, coming to America and pretty much having no choice but to come here or they're going to lose their lives. And you watch them struggle to make the immigration process work in their favor. You watch them struggle through the labor that they have to do to be able to survive. And it's it's just a really beautiful insight into a huge section of culture in America that doesn't get a light shown on it 
too often. Um, I have a feeling we'll be discussing this topic a little bit further in this podcast. But uh, yeah, El Norte, a really beautiful and sensitive film. And I, I highly recommend it. It's a, yeah, just a great movie. I don't know if Gregory Nava directed anything else. He probably did, but I haven't seen it. Next up is Born in Flames, directed by Lizzie Borden. Um, this is a sort of mockumentary isn't the proper term. It's a documentary, but it's a narrative. And the documentary takes place in the future when a socialist government has gained power. And it's about this feminist group of women who are trying to rebel against the system. It's a really, really fantastic low-budget film. It was recommended to me a few years ago. I think it's just a wonderful movie. Um, it's got a lot of aspects to it. You know, it's a very, it's a very low-budget situation. So there are certain aspects of it that don't look the best, and some of the performances are a little underwhelming. But the message is really powerful, and it's a very powerful film. Um, so yeah, Born in Flames, directed by Lizzie Borden, highly recommended. Uh, next up, we have a little cult classic that I love called The Hunger, directed by Tony Scott. Okay, so this is a bisexual fantasy nightmare vampire film starring hmm. Catherine Deneuve, Susan Sarandon, and David Bowie. And I mean, if that isn't enough to sell you, then I don't know what else will. But it's a really fun romp. And uh, one of Tony Scott's more underrated films, I think. Yeah, so The Hunger, a really fun movie from this year. Uh, I'm just going to keep recommending these unless uh, unless another film comes up that I want to recommend more. But I just love them so much. The second film in Carlos Saura's Flamenco trilogy, Carmen, comes out, which I think is the masterpiece of the trilogy. Um, it is an adaptation of the opera Carmen, but it's done through flamenco dance. And it's a really fascinating film because they're doing a flamenco piece of Carmen within the movie. But then the choreographer, the actress playing Carmen and the actress who used to be his lead in other productions that he had done have sort of their own tryst going on. And it turns into the story of Carmen within modern day on the outside while they're creating a flamenco version of Carmen within the film itself. It's a really fantastic film. And the dancing is just so amazing. And the the part when the movie finally fully like clashes in on itself and turns into sort of a molding of the flamenco film and the real life narrative that's happening. So satisfying. It's like a beautiful movie. So hmm. Carmen, Carlos Saura. And uh, you know what? Another another um, probably more well-known Cult film, you might have seen this. I'm not sure. Uh, Videodrome by David Cronenberg. Oh, yeah. oh, for sure. I love this movie. This is a kind of a tough watch as it's about a man who becomes obsessed with snuff films. And Cronenberg's a little too good at making <laughs> snuff films, even though they're not real. It's uh, kind of hard to convince yourself while you're watching it. But it's a really great examination of society and how we take in media and how media can sort of control us to a certain extent. It's also just got some crazy body horror in it. It's got some really infamous effects in it. And a uh, fantastic performance from James Woods when he was still cool. So, Videodrome. Videodrome might be one of the weirder movies I've ever seen. But I really enjoy it. I like how a lot of these films you point out have a theme of rebellion at their, at their heart. I think that a lot of the popular films of the 80s, you know, they're very flashy, uh, especially the American ones, uh, very big, flashy entertainment pieces. But there is a uh, strong subculture niche films that are rebelling against uh, the larger society as a whole uh, during the 80s. And Return of the Jedi comes out this year and uh, they never made another Star Wars movie. Too bad. Oh, and you also have A Christmas Story. Yeah, just another example of that 80s nostalgia for the 50s, which we were kind of talking about how that cycles last week. Mm -hmm. Did we talk about it last week in our main episode? I think it was on the Patreon podcast. Uh, who, who can remember? Now there's too much for us to keep track of. Listeners, let us know. Thank you. If you're on Patreon, you don't even have to worry about tracking any of that. You're just listening to all of it. So think about <laughs> it like that. <laughs> Great. Great. Those are films in 1983. 
Um, so, yeah, I guess this week we're talking about Scarface. You got the plot, Arthur? Yeah. Scarface. Uh, Colon. Remake of the 1932 gangster film of the same name, now detailing the rise and fall of Cuban petty criminal turned cocaine kingpin, Tony Montana, of course, played by Al Pacino. He begins the film as a recent refugee to the United States and works his way up in the underground drug scene of Miami. Tony's explosive temper gets him on the bad side of his mentor, who Tony then usurps and takes over the operation. Seemingly on top of the world, Tony's caught for tax evasion and makes a deal with his Colombian dealers that falls apart. Seeking revenge, the Colombians raid Tony's mansion, and he goes down in a blaze of glory and many one-liners that have permeated into pop culture. Classic rise and fall, uh, Tony Montana seeking the American dream and his destruction at the end. There's many other minor characters, too. I think he loves his uh, sister. Something weird's going on between him and his sister in this movie. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Something weird. Something weird. We'll talk about it. Uh, (laughs) What what did you think of this movie? I thought this movie was great. What's my big takeaway from this? I mean, it is. Good Lord, it is violent. Uh, We've been watching some graphic sort of underground films in the 70s. Uh, but it's kind of startling to see something like this in the mainstream media. I know, I know there was a controversy when it was released. It, it got an X rating and they, they had to like talk it down to being an R, uh, with the MPAA. I mean, I, I just haven't seen a lot of films from this time period. Uh, but this is, this seems startlingly violent for, for the time. And the most F-bombs in a movie, uh, at the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's that too. It just feels like, uh. It feels like a lot. So I can see why people were startled when it came out. Are you Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm not in love with this movie. <laughs> oh, we finally found a film that one of us loves and one of us hates. Uh, I didn't say hate. Now, now, oh, don't be putting okay, words okay, in my mouth. Okay. Let me get this straight first. This is a very, very pretty movie. Everything, the way it's framed, the lighting, the set design, it's unbelievable. The violence is the best part of the movie. The shootouts are so spectacular and the blood effects are so good. That chainsaw scene was next level. Like, I I was very entertained throughout the movie. And I know this is unfair to just be like comparing a director's work. (laughs) This being a De Palma film and me being such a big De Palma fan and this being his most famous movie and like what people consider to be his masterpiece... I just can't I just can't get behind that. Uh, This movie, this movie needs camp. (laughs) This movie needs like something. I think it. (laughs) I'm trying to like just because you like fans from the paradise so much. Well, and and his other films as well, like, you know, Dress to Kill, Carrie. They all have a certain layer to them of like self-awareness and sort of a, a sense of comedy within them not taking themselves too seriously, which makes the more serious motif stand out a bit more. Whereas this film is clearly taking itself very seriously. If I were to say De Palma ever made like an Oscar bait movie, I would say it was this one. This feels like Oscar bait to you? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, Mainly in the fact of, you know, just how driven it is by the central performance and how it's, you know, approaching these topics within u.s history it takes itself so seriously i i and i didn't hate it and who knows maybe a revisit in the future will bring me around to it what's funny is that like the one (laughs) one thing that i really really loved uh, as far as the camp factor goes was when the guy was outside of the house right before the final shootout and swings the grappling hook and hooks it up to climb up the side of the building i was like okay well that was great and that was directed by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> oh, just some random little part. That was that was what stood out to you. Yeah, I, I didn't hate it. And who knows? My opinion on this might evolve and change. But right now, outside of the form of it, I I can't say that I'm like super impressed by it. Oh, wow. Not impressed by this. I, I, I don't see that at all. I'm I'm pretty impressed with how everything came together. I think this is a very... Uh, effective 
film. It was tense. It was very, very tense. I mean, when Tony goes in to kill Frank, I th- I was on the edge of my seat. I, w- I knew exactly what was going to happen because how could it not? Tony, Tony's going to blow up and kill this guy. But I thought the way that the violence, uh, you know, everything leading up to the violence was also really well directed. And I was I was engaged in this movie the whole time. I would say I was engaged. I mean, I wasn't bored, was not bored. Hmm, OK. You know, some movies are just are just good or just fine. And that's OK. And that was kind of where this film was for me. <laughs> uh, uh, we might have just lost half our listenership. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> uh, did you not like uh the main character i mean did you not like tony montana <laughs> are we supposed to like him uh i'm i'm definitely like interested in him yeah i would say i was interested in him uh and i don't need I like following him around i don't think i really understand what this movie is trying to say drugs bad drugs bad I don't think that's that's pretty simplistic. And it and I don't necessarily need a movie to make a point but when a movie opens with an opening crawl like that and then talks about politics throughout and then makes itself about Cuban immigration to such an extreme sense. I want it to be saying something about that. I don't just want it to be like that's what's in the movie, you know? Um, yeah, I think that the film is trying to criticize the American dream. I, I, I don't think that's hidden anywhere. The idea of being yeah. driven to get to the top of wherever you are in life and how you're going to have to sell your soul in that pursuit. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm biased, but I love a good rise and fall story. I, I, this isn't doing anything too unexpected. The only thing that was really unexpected was that uh, the, the the sister comes in and starts uh, trying to seduce him. No, she's not trying to seduce him. That's, no, that's, she that's wants the to wrong way to say it. Yeah, she's, tr- she's literally shooting at him. Uh, <laughs> uh, but... Uh, he clearly has some weird need to control his uh, his sister's uh, sexuality. And she knows this and she uh, unbuttons her dress in front of him and uh, goes about shooting him. That could have that could have been campier. I can see your point. But no, I love the I, I love the tone of this film overall. I, I think that it, it strikes a good balance between something really over the top and kind of stupid and something that is still talking about real world serious problems yeah i like this movie a lot yeah yeah good 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 uh i really don't want people thinking i hate this movie i just i think you do though so we should really (laughs) stick with that (laughs) (laughs) it takes a lot for me to hate a movie and i really would genuinely i have to be bored to hate a movie and i really wasn't bored um and i'm a huge fan of michelle pfeiffer i know this was a really big moment in her career this is what sort of pushed her forward and it was fun seeing her so young and so disinterested. <laughs> I liked it when F. Murray Abraham got hung from the helicopter. It was a good scene. All the violence in this. Good stuff. Yeah. I, I was looking actively for opinions that sort of matched mine and were, you know, criticizing the film on a deeper level. And all anyone was ever doing was complaining about the violence. And I was thinking, no, that was the good part. Like, that was <laughs> that was the part that was done extremely well. Like, <laughs> and I, maybe maybe we're desensitized now in a way that people weren't in the 80s. Because I wouldn't call this film tame. But I would say that we do see films that are this violent come out at a much more regular interval now. And you definitely don't hear any... Like, when was the last time we had a movie that people were like, this is too violent? You know, when was that even a part of the discourse? Yeah, or when was the last time you heard about a film getting rated like NC-17 and having to be reappraised by the MPAA to go down to R because, like, the studio was fighting it? Like, I, I don't hear about that either. Yeah, I do find that really... Like, how much do you know about that? Um, Not too much. I guess because this was pre-NC-17, so it was rated X. Right. De Palma made all these edits and changes to the film and they still rated it X and then he made more edits and changes and they rated it X. And it was that third edit that went through the appeals case because he said, I'm not editing this anymore. And they took it to this. I think it was an officer in narcotics who had like sort of a history of people who abuse drugs and stuff. And he defended the film saying that it was a very realistic depiction of people who sell drugs and how it's like an important film for people to watch as far as being wary towards drugs. And again, like that, that was one of the defenses used to get its rating appeal, repeal, appeal, appealed, repealed. I don't know anymore, but hmm. 
Yeah, so so it went through all that, and then after it got accepted, De Palma was pretty much said, well, I just don't think they're going to notice the difference between this third edit and the very first edit, since it was mainly, it wasn't even really the violence that was being asked to tone down, it was the drug use. And so he released it as the first edit of the film, and nobody noticed, and it wasn't until years later that he told people that. I guess he was being approached about a possible extended cut or director's cut of the film with the first edit that was uh, taken down by the MPAA. And that's when he said, no, that that was the final edit because I just put it back to normal because I I thought they would have just (laughs) appealed it at the first edit, which is amazing, honestly, because screw the MPAA. And I think that's awesome. (laughs) Like, I really do think that's awesome that that just went completely through the cracks and they really didn't notice. Yeah, I love that, too. You know who else had disagreements about this movie back in the day? I know. That was what I was laughing when I was watching the video just now. I was like, oh, I wonder what this is going to be like for us right now. I sent Andrew a uh, video from Siskel and Ebert from their show back in the day, and they also disagree about their opinions on this movie. Ebert really loves it. Uh, Siskel thinks that it's uh, boring. He specifically doesn't like the character of Tony Montana, thinks he's a boring character, which, Andrew, that is not your opinion, I, I, I don't think. Yeah, I wouldn't have minded the film having a little bit more about how him being somewhat successful as the drug kingpin for me to feel like, I don't oh, know. that fun 80s montage wasn't enough yeah, for you? I, I hate montages. Is that what the, is that what the problem is? <laughs> that montage was funny. I mean, I thought it was silly and stupid, uh, but it, uh, it's a sign of the times. Back to Siskel and uh, Ebert and their, their, their thoughts on this. Uh, link in the show notes, by the way, for the video. You can hear them argue for a second. I don't know. I feel like I knew about the character of Tony Montana and I didn't even know he was from Scarface or I, I didn't know where that was from. But I've heard those lines. I've heard that accent. I've seen Al Pacino with the machine gun and everything. The character of Tony Montana has permeated into popular culture and is sort of bigger than this film is on its own. And I think to to call him boring is to miss the bigger point. And I, I don't know. I feel like he's a very fascinating character and people clearly uh, connect with him because they remember him. Yeah. I don't need every character to go through some sort of like big transformative life change uh, or to as as Cisco puts it, he, he compares Al Pacino's character here to his character in The Godfather, where he starts off as kind of like this goody two shoes and then gets drawn into the mob life. Right. To go from good to evil is a more uh, uh, interesting character arc. Uh, But I still think that I I, uh, there's there's room for characters like Tony Montana just starts off as a petty criminal. He wants more in life. He wants to be at the top of the world. And uh, when he gets there, he's bored and hates his life and uh, everything falls apart. I, I, I don't know. He wants something. There's a desire there. And once he gets it, he's not happy. I think that's still a fascinating character to have. Yeah, he gets everything he wants and he's so unhappy yeah i do like that because that's just you know how the world seems to work which is crazy. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's relatable <laughs> but there are you know you, you talk about people who remember this character i mean there are a lot of people who revere this character as a hero which that's the, the weird part yeah that's the, the really the weird film part, yeah. definitely does not want you to do that i did not leave this film saying man i want to be him and for some reason i think a lot of people do yeah, which is a huge misreading of the film. And you know what you know what really bugged me about this movie? There's a disclaimer at the end of the credits. I can't remember exactly what it says, but it's along the lines of uh, this film is not intended to criticize Cuban immigrants as a whole. The majority of them are good people. This is a depiction of a specific situation with a specific person, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah. It like covers its bases. <laughs> and even that feels like they are aware within the film itself that it is uh, very much like a story about Cuban immigrants coming in and screwing up the place, I think. I think that's a misreading of the film. But the fact that people walk away from this film thinking, you know, one, that Tony Montana is a hero. That's a failure of the film, honestly. And two, that uh, Cuban Americans are... uh, all criminals I, I, that's that's also got to be addressed i think that's a failure of the film too you can't just put a disclaimer at the end 
and and hope that all is okay. And I I think they try to cover their bases in the text of the film itself too, because Tony's mother is stating that he is making them all look bad, right? Like the rest of uh, the Cuban American immigrants are trying to make a new life here. They're trying to just be hardworking citizens of the country. And here Tony is getting involved in the drug trade and making them look bad. So that's in the film itself, but it's only like a scene or two. You know, you know that Sidney Lumet was supposed to direct this movie. I did see that. Yes. And I love Sidney Lumet. Yeah. And I guess he had issues with the script and wanted to make this film finding this out was really interesting to me because I can totally see this angle and see how reading the script would want you to have this angle. Okay. He allegedly wanted to make the film about how the American government itself will put people in this situation through poverty, through zoning to sort of give them no other way to go. And like it was supposed to villainize the government versus the individual and they were not going for that. Hmm, that's interesting. And so it was when he was making those suggestions that Oliver Stone was like, he hates my script. And then De Palma, who was supposed to direct Flashdance, dropped Flashdance and came and directed this instead. And I think that it does sort of show as like not really a De Palma project because it it has such a level of self-importance to it that he doesn't normally have in his films. But it does sort of feel like De Palma trying to emulate Sidney Lumet to a certain extent between the casting, the sort, the material that they're discussing, the time period, everything about it. Yeah, but, but I do think that's interesting. And I do, I, I would, I would be interested in seeing a film like that where it really is about how um, you can come here with the best intentions and uh, the government sort of forces you into a corner because there's no other way to go. Sort of like El Norte. <laughs> uh, the film I recommended at the beginning of the episode. I mean, that just sounds more interesting. Yeah, I'll admit that. Yeah, I think the film is fun, <laughs> but I don't think the film wanted to be fun. Because <laughs> I don't think it's too serious. And I mean, the the synth score and the some of the ultra violence and the chewing scenery going on from some of the acting. I mean, I just feel like it is kind of a, a campy movie. It's 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 not the Godfather. It's not trying. When you said this is Oscar bait, I was like, I don't see that at all. Uh, but there is no denying that this film has a political angle. Dumb B movies can have political angles. Uh, but this film starts off with the story of the Cuban refugees. And then it starts with the immigration office uh, taking Tony in. And, you know, you have Jimmy Carter's portrait in the office. And they I think they even mention Carter at some point. So there's clearly some sort of commentary going on about the current state of immigration in the United States in 83 or just before that. But I'm not sure what this movie is trying to say. I, I understand. I understand what you uh, might have a problem with there. I was curious, like, is this what the the rednecks fear? Is this what the hard right is like afraid all immigrants right. are? And I uh, think, is this what their perception is based on? Is this dumb movie? I think the Florida location as well also sort of maybe put me into that mindset as well as like, yeah. hmm. How many yeah. people that I grew up around watched a movie like this and that's the reason why, like, yeah, immigrants are bad. Absolutely, yeah. Because Al Pacino and Brownface was selling cocaine. Right. And shooting people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that it needed to do a better job of, like, I don't know, you can't just put the disclaimer at the end. You can't just have that one scene of uh, his mother berating him because... Clearly, people walked away from this film misreading it. And yeah, I think that might be a failure of the film, even though I still really enjoyed it. And I didn't walk away with those thoughts, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, fun. It, Tony Montana is so clearly like bored and miserable and not having a good time. I don't, I don't know how a lot of people emulate him. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's become a huge inspiration to many people. And I do think 
I do think the film does sort of celebrate him and frame him as a hero more than it wants to. Uh, I mean, it's almost like a martyr's death at the end. Which, I mean, that was spectacular. Him just taking all those bullets, getting shot from behind, and when he lands in the water, like, all the blood just gushes out of the fountain. That was great. It was a gorgeous shot, yeah. Uh, But yeah, as I was watching it, I was definitely like, man, that's too bad. Greed is good. He really, he really deserved to be happy. (laughs) He was just a man with a dream. (laughs) (laughs) No, he's a, he's a dummy. But I think this might be the first time that I like was fine with the messages that the movie was putting out. Like, I, I don't think that the messages in this film are offensive to me. Uh, even if other people misread them. But I think this is the first time that you might have had a problem with like the messages and the the underlying themes in a movie, whereas I am able to overlook them and, and just kind of uh, enjoy it. I think yeah. usually we're on the other side of this. Uh, yeah, this I think that's probably true. And that's we're like, how do we how do we parse this? Um, yeah, because sometimes I'm like, man, I can't I can't really get get on this this train and you're like but it's so beautiful the aesthetics yeah <laughs> uh, i mean yeah if there's any film whose messages you want me to defend <laughs> that i haven't i will but yeah i mean and i'm not i'm not i wasn't offended i just more was perplexed you know uh it, again i'll just ask the same question again what is this movie about what is it trying to say uh who is it for the American dream is not all it's cracked up to be. So I agree with that. I agree that it's saying the American dream is not all it's cracked up to be. And it's difficult over here. But then within the framing of the film, it feels like it's saying you should stay in Cuba because it's just as difficult over here. Oh, um, OK. I don't know. Right. No, I don't think that's what it's. I don't think that's what it's saying. Stay in Cuba. I get that. I'm just saying, and not not in a like redneck right wing, you know, you should stay where you came from kind of way. I mean, it's like you coming over here is not going to make it any easier because ho- whoever you are over there is who you'll be over here. I don't know. Weird. I, I <laughs> okay. Yeah. American dream tough and hard and not all it's cracked up to be. And I agree with all that. I think that's what it's saying. Yeah. <laughs> But we'll have Oliver Stone on our uh, on our show next week to uh, explain himself. Yeah. And that's the thing is that I haven't really been a big fan of Oliver Stone movies. And I didn't know he wrote this until I was watching it. And so maybe that's it. Maybe I just don't like Oliver Stone. I mean, yeah, you know, he's being faced with this suggestion of, hey, maybe turn it on the American government. Maybe make it a little bit less about uh, the Cuban people who are responsible for this within the story and stuff. And uh, he's like, no. <laughs> well, it's not Brian De Palma. We we love Brian De Palma. No, yeah, love Brian De Palma. And yeah, the way it's direct. I mean, the acting and the violence and every like the things that a director is in charge of on set, the things he should be overseeing are all the best parts of this movie. So, yeah, I definitely don't put it on him, but I don't like the script. I don't like the story. But you know who else might be uh, who might be to blame? Who? Mr. Pacino. Yeah, I know this is something he was really passionate about making, and it does show in his performance. You can see that this was a role that he wanted. And even after he went through all that trouble of producing it and trying to find somebody for it um, as far as a director and helping get this movie off the ground with the entire intention of him being the lead, they still tried to cast Robert De Niro instead of him. (laughs) (laughs) And Robert De Niro declined. He said he didn't want to do it. Which I think is for the best, because uh, I do think I do think this is a great performance from Al Pacino, for sure. I like that video from Siskel and Ebert, where Ebert mentions Al Pacino had been in a bunch of stinkers lately. A lot of the recent films had been sort funny? of a fall from grace. And yeah, I mean, it's it's a classic example of us thinking, man, these great actors, they used to only do right. great things. And now they just do things for the money. Now Al Pacino <laughs> will just take some rom-com and doesn't care about it. But back then, I mean, it's just that we remember the really great performances and we forget about, you know, the ones that he just did for the money. But, yeah, he was just doing stuff for the money all the time. Uh, Dunkachino. <laughs> that commercial. <laughs> yeah. for, for, for Jack and Jill with Adam Sandler. <laughs> 
But I think that there's um, an interview where Al Pacino said he'll do any script. Oh, yeah? Um, I, I think that came out just a couple years ago, if memory serves. Will he do my script? I, I don't know. I think you have to, I still think you have to pay him Pacino money. Which, you know, if uh, we get some people on our Patreon. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I, I feel like Brian De Palma, even though this is a, uh, you know, film by Brian De Palma, it, it's worth pointing out that this is really Al Pacino's baby. Like, it feels like he was shepherding this thing uh, from the very beginning and he, he really wanted to play this role. Uh, yeah, it shows he he gets really into the performance. He's chewing up all the scenery. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Tell me about the production. What were some of the funny tidbits from the set? I know everything was falling apart. There were a lot of problems. Yeah, I know that Pacino burned his hand on a gun during a take and had to go to the hospital for two weeks. And then during that two weeks, they filmed a different shootout without him. The shots that didn't involve him. And two other people were injured. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> so that sounds like hell. Um, you know, one of the weirdest things I found out about this movie. Let me see if I can pull up her name here. Okay, so during the chainsaw sequence, there are two characters who are sitting outside in the car. And a girl in a blue bikini comes up and starts flirting with them. And they're late because of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the actress who played her... Her name is Tammy Lynn Lepper, and she on set was was heard talking on the phone about her financial troubles and about how people were trying to get her. And then she disappeared five months before the movie came out and nobody has ever seen her since. What? And uh, and they did a whole Unsolved Mysteries episode about her and her sister is still determined to try and find her. Um, so isn't that that's oh my God. that's that's fascinating. It's like a whole like separate side mission that we got to go on it's amazing the things you find out when you're just doing little minor research <laughs> for a podcast episode uh, i found yeah, out I, that uh <laughs> the the city of miami didn't want anything to do with this film right when uh <laughs> when the production was like hey can we film in your city uh the city of miami said uh can we read the script and they sent them the script and miami said oh absolutely not uh no get out of here you're going to ruin the tourist industry with your drug story so they ended up filming in la end of story yeah i, I found that i found that pretty interesting too <laughs> i can i can see their point oh, um yeah they it were does right. not make they miami look like a safe <laughs> place to be <laughs> no my impression of miami after watching this film is that if you go to just like try to enjoy lunch there's gonna be like a man murdered by a chainsaw across the street in a shootout yeah in general i thought that was probably my favorite part of this movie was that sh well that entire sequence that's um, that the chainsaw sequence and yeah yeah i think my favorite part was tony montagna's minions watching him just put his entire face down into the pile of cocaine that was that was funny snorting it oh yeah that that's one thing in 2015 al pacino did an interview where he said that that was milk powder and he snorted so much of it that like he had to he had I, he might have had to go to the hospital for it or something. But something went wrong with his nasal passages. And he said that his nasal passages have never been the same since. And like there's still something wrong with his nose to this day. Oh, uh, De Palma wanted to cast Glenn Close in the Michelle Pfeiffer role. And they said, no, she's not sexy enough. Wait, who's that? Glenn Close. Um, I mean, she's a very, very famous actor. She was in a production of Hamlet. I mean, she's most oh, well yeah. known for being Cruella DeVille in the live action 101 Dalmatians. Yeah, I definitely know her. Yeah. Albert Nobbs, Dangerous Liaisons, you know. Um, Tony Montana is only referred to as Scarface once in Spanish. Yeah. And the scar on his face gets smaller as the movie goes on. <laughs> <laughs> you're like wait why is he called that oh that's not a wrinkle allegedly michelle pfeiffer accidentally cut al pacino's face during a scene but i am like i don't even remember a scene where that would have happened and uh mm. and i couldn't find anything else to back that up so okay we'll take that, that one with a grain of salt yeah listeners. a grain of salt a grain of cocaine if you will <clears throat> oh <laughs> arthur you good yeah, man, I'm great. I'm doing great. Oh, now you're really good. 
yeah, I've, I've never done cocaine. I don't want to do cocaine. I don't ever want to do cocaine. Um, heard it's highly addictive. Heard that the come down from it, all you want is more cocaine. Everything I see about cocaine and its addictions, as far as Hollywood depictions of it and everything, uh, just makes it look horrible. I don't want that in my body. So the message of this film, that drugs are bad, clearly left an impression on you. If we're finessing it down to cocaine is bad, then sure. Yeah, okay. But that was something I felt way before way before I ever saw this movie. <laughs> I did, I, and I agree with you. I, actually, I laughed really hard when he just sort of leaned his head forward and <laughs> just face deep in the mountain. And his lackeys are like, just kind of like sad for him they're like watching him do it and they're just like oh come on man not like that not like this um you know cocaine may be a bad drug but it led to some great films apparently this is how hollywood made films it's just I mean, fueled by cocaine for last, years last week we discussed fassbender and that was like his bread and butter and coffee was just doing right. cocaine all day that's right so even though the Hollywood executives are telling you that cocaine's bad, that's not how they're living their lives. This movie performed well. It wasn't like a huge success, and it was a big critical flop. Most critics hated it at the time. And now it's revered as a classic. You know, when was the last time you heard anyone uh, slyly reference terms of endearment off the cuff, you know? What is that? It's the movie that won Best Picture this year. Oh, okay. And I mean, I've I've never seen it, but it's directed by Albert Brooks, who's a director who I very much respect and love. I'm not dissing that movie in any way. I'm sure I would actually very much enjoy it. But, uh, you know, it it is interesting that this movie in its time was seen as something that wasn't worth its salt. And now it's just this huge movie. And I I really do think that it has to do with the the character. Like, I, I think that al pacino's performance and everything that goes into tony montana as a person uh, i i think that's why people really like this movie and why they've uh taken it taken it in reappraised it maybe yeah it, it was actually interesting when i was looking up reviews for this I, I know there was like the big controversy with like oh there's too much violence and not uh, apparently critics really didn't take to this film but our usual go-to's ebert and uh, vincent canby at the new york times uh, actually really liked it yeah, I saw that Vincent Canby really loved it. So there were there were still people defending it at the time. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely been reappraised and now is considered uh, a classic of the era. And people always compare it to The Godfather, obviously, because they're both about uh, the mob or, uh, you know, underground uh, crime and uh, star Al Pacino. Right. Of course. Yeah. But man, they feel so different. Very different movies. They're both also three hours long, so there's that. Uh, but yeah, they, they feel completely different. I don't have much to compare this to. I mean, any, I don't know, Great Gatsby sort of stories? I don't I don't know. But what is this like? I, I haven't seen the original. I haven't seen the original Scarface. And I understand it actually changes a ton. Well, yeah, because, I mean, it takes place after that movie was released. Oh, well, yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen it either. I should watch that. I but I wonder if that would bring some clarification. What's funny is that one of the only things I know about that movie is the the scene where he looks outside and sees the business sign with the earth on top of it that says the world is yours. And so when there's the globe with the world is yours around it, I went, I, you know, I did the Leo DiCaprio meme. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> I pointed at it like, whoa, that's, that's from the other movie. And uh, this film ends with a dedication to Howard Hawks and, uh, oh, I've forgotten the second name, but uh, the original creators of uh, Scarface 1932. Yeah, Howard Hawks and Ben Hecht. Thank you. But yeah, I saw reviews or summaries of this version of Scarface saying that really it maintains the name, but they changed everything else. Here's here's something I will say about this film that I really appreciate and enjoy. I like violence in movies. I like films that push boundaries. And I like Michelle Pfeiffer as an actress quite a bit. And if if reading what people were thinking about this at the time and the reaction to it at the time, it really feels like this movie, as far as culture went, really pushed that boundary and really made... It, it sort of made a dent in American film history as to 
how far a film could go on a mainstream level. And I really appreciate that because I think there are probably a ton of movies I love that would not have been able to be made and a studio would have been terrified of touching if it weren't for Scarface. So I'll say that. Right. Sorry, devotees and listeners. I know you're probably just waiting for me to gush on this movie. (laughs) And I don't like love it enough to really put up a hard defense. I'm just going to let Andrew think what he thinks and I'm just going to enjoy my memory of Scarface. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know if I'm going to like revisit this one anytime soon. It was good, but. Yeah, I, I think what's funny is that I think I probably will revisit this at some point. I don't know how soon. Um, I like revisiting De Palma movies in general. And, uh, and I think maybe a revisit to this now that I'm a little more aware of where it's coming from and what it's got going for it. I think that it could be beneficial it could drive the the point home further. Like, oh, I wasn't into that. But who knows? I'm always down for reappraising a movie, though. I mean, even though we're recording this podcast, this opinion is mildly set in stone because this will be the easiest thing for people to go back and listen to. There there could very well be a time in my life where I'm like, no, Scarface is a great movie. I was dumb back then. I eagerly await that statement. <laughs> you just got it on. <laughs> you just got it on record. What else did I put? What are my notes? What do we have? We, we've we kind of covered the notes and uh, not gotten too off topic at all. So, you know, successful episode. Oh, is, are we feeling good? I don't know. Do you want to say anything else about the remake? What kind of value does this story hold for today? And how could it be updated to reflect current issues? If they were to remake Scarface today, how would how would they do it? Well, they are going to remake Scarface today. Oh, yeah, that is a thing that has been stuck in development hell for years and years. Uh, so it'll happen eventually. But it's out now. Wait, what? It's out of production hell. Oh, what's going on with it? So Coen Brothers are writing it. Luca Guadagnino is directing it. And I think it goes into production in like a few months. Oh, wow. 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 Okay. So uh, let's set our opinions in stone uh, again. I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I, I think there is room for a remake. I, I, I would be very interested because the drug world is so much different now. I mean, yeah, the drug cartel and the war on drugs being such a huge failure. I mean, there are certain people who definitely do feel this way. But I mean, as far as like main pop culture goes, it's not really associated with any sort of immigrant culture or any sort of specific race anymore. I mean, drugs are just sort of everywhere. And, you know, from anyone all the time. So I, I don't know. I think that could be interesting to approach it from that angle. Yeah, yeah. I definitely would like to see more being pinned on the American government and their failure to address the real issues in our society that come from illegal drug dealing. Um, mainly the fact that the drugs themselves are illegal. I mean, I'm not going to get up on a soapbox right now, but... The imprisonment rates for people who have, you know, done marijuana in a state where it isn't legal. And now there are all these states where it is legal and those people have not been incarcerated or have not decarcerated. Sorry, that's a problem that needs to be addressed. I do think there are issues in American culture right now surrounding drug culture that could benefit from a story like this being told in a modern setting. Here's my problem. Okay. Luca Guadagnino and me do not get along. I, I, I'm I not a big fan of his films. Uh, so I... I <laughs> I'm, well, tell our listeners and me some of his other films. Oh, uh, Call Me By Your Name was his big one. Um, okay. The movie of his I love is I Am Love with Tilda Swinton. I think it's a great movie. Uh, the Suspiria remake. Hmm. Okay, yeah. The, yeah. A Bigger Splash, which I did not like at all. Um, but it's being written by the Coen brothers? Yes. Well, I think it's written by the Coen brothers. I think they're done. I think the script is made. Okay. Well, I like the Coen brothers. I love the Coen brothers. Yeah. Eager, eagerly uh, awaiting whatever that is. And yeah, I think there is room for a remake. But let's talk about remakes in our Patreon episode, Andrew. And okay. uh, when they work, if they work. <laughs> should we should we do some final thoughts for our for our regular listeners? Uh, yeah, Andrew, uh, what are your big takeaways? Um, my big takeaways are 
um, there's still clearly a moral side in the way I judge films that I didn't know was really active for me. And that Al Pacino is a fantastic actor. And that violence and gore in movies is great. <laughs> a lot of thoughts. A lot of takeaways. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? <laughs> you know, I really like this movie. I really enjoyed it. And I do remember when I was watching it being like, man, this is problematic and weird. Uh, especially some of the opening stuff where I could, I was feeling iffy about what the film was saying about uh, immigrants. And there's, there's definitely room to critique Scarface. Okay. And mm -hmm. even though I, I, I do like it, I think all of your uh, criticisms are hundred percent valid. We'll see how the listeners feel. <laughs> <laughs> I think if someone wanted to criticize the like ultra violence in this film too, uh, I, I could, I would hear them out. I, I don't know if you would, but I, I do think that this film is uh, pretty over the top and crazy. And I do think that it missed its marks. Uh, I think that it left an impression in popular culture, people uh, looking up to Tony Montana and sort of seeing him as a hero that the film doesn't do enough to, uh, circumvent. Uh, I think someone could walk away from this, and people did, getting the wrong message. Even though I personally felt like I, I, I knew what the movie was saying. Uh, yep. All that's to say, really loved it. Cool. Great. Well, next week we're watching Amadeus, directed by Milos Forman. And I am definitely looking forward to this one. Especially because I have already watched it. And, I'd say, uh, this is finally one where we both already have seen it. <laughs> um, well, I just watched it uh, earlier this week because I was. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be having a special guest, Chandler Burns, uh, who works for the Sundance Film Festival, who's here to work for the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, he's he's going to be joining us on it. So very exciting. Yep. Looking forward to that. Love Chandler. That'll be great. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of A Century in Cinema. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast streaming service of your choice. And sayonara. What's the button at the end of the episode? I th I think we... It goes boom. There's that. That's like the that's like the literal end of the episode. But there's always like a there's like a cute thing we say. There are some episodes where that like happens right in the middle of a line like it's like there's no good place to stop so it's like i'll be laughing and then 